Welcome to another episode of Talking with Kevin and Son. Hi, I am your show host, or, or host, Kevin McLemore, three-time published author. But today, the sun is not shining on me. It is shining on my guest and his better half. This episode is brought to you by RMK Productions and the 10 United Podcast Network. Through the power of story, our mission is to uplift, share stories in, and our voices, experience and perspectives using the framework of teaching, learning, and modeling. Our purpose is hope. Today, Joe Foster was born in Baldwin, England, shares the same um, birthday as his grandfather, Joseph William Foster, the original shoemaker, the track spike running shoe and trainer. And I know this personally because I made my, my college living off of uh, track and field and playing football. So I am very familiar with your product. Born into the family business, Joe and his late brother, Jeff, worked their way through the Foster's Athletic Shoe Company until both hit that family's glass ceiling, meaning Joe's dad and his uncle had their differences and didn't see the future of this homegrown company growing into a global brand. Today, you will learn about Joe Foster and his wife, Julie. Learn the lessons of entrepreneurship through firsthand stories on how the Mercury Company became Reebok. And if you hang around long enough, you'll learn more about Joe Foster, the original shoemaker, and giving back. And before I introduce Joe, I want to share something with you. Hi, my name's Penelope Wilson, and um, I designed a fitness product four years ago, four and a half years ago, and I've been working on it for the last four and a half years. And I have been honored to have met Joe Foster, who is the founder of Reebok here in the UK, and his wife, Julie. And um, they have been such a tremendous help to me. They're such kind people, and they have that wonderful old school um, values and manners and um, and attitude. And uh, I will be ever grateful for for meeting them and having them in my life. And um, Joe is a true gentleman who founded Reebok in Bolton uh, many years ago and uh, took it to um, massive success. And uh, it had, nothing has changed him. He's, he's still a, a, a wonderful gentleman from Bolton. Um, and I, yeah, I've been absolutely honored to uh, have met them. And Joe is uh, working very hard for me with my fitness product to introduce me to some very large companies. And uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about them. That's our lovely Penny. <laughs> Penny, yes, lovely. Yes, she's a lovely girl. We love her. Yeah, we do uh, well, she she loves you. And the reason why I asked Penny to do that because no one can do this one thing we call life alone, and no one can be successful. Uh, in this business uh, alone. There are no self-made millionaires that came from a millionaire background. You guys came from, you know, normal, humble upbringings. Now, Joe, I'm going to direct this to you. Okay, Kevin. Joseph William Foster, your grandfather. Yes. Knowing what we all know here in America and the world about the Reebok brand and Joe Foster, 
we're going to tell the original story. If your grandfather was here today and would sit back into his settee and cross his legs and have a little bit of rum, and he was talking and he was telling everyone how he felt about his grandson, what would you think your grandfather would say to you today, Joe? Well, that's a tough question to answer um, <laughs> because it really, it, it almost asked me to, um, to use some ego. Please do. <laughs> and, and, and really, uh, ego is the one thing I try and avoid. I, I think my grandfather would have said, well, Joe, well done. Well done. Glad you did that. Great. He may say a few other things as well, but uh, that might be embarrassing. But I think well done. Yes, I think well done. That's enough for me. That's well done. And and, and Penny, um, sitting here um, by a legend, and uh, I, I am taken back to, you know, I've known a lot of famous people. And when I started this platform, I said the only way that I was ever going to talk to celebrities and stars that they were giving back. So we will talk about some of the foundations you guys have done. But this story is such a remarkable story coming from, you know, coming out of World War II um, to you and your brother trying to convince your father uh, and his and your uncle to see beyond um, Bolton and to think much bigger. You had ideas, you had dreams. So um, 1958, a couple of things happened. You were born, um, you saw the writing on the wall, and I'm going to fast track the conversation of the indifferences between your father. Can you give our listeners a little background to growing up as the shoemaker's uh, son and apprentice um, and what day-to-day -day life was like um, back then after coming out of World War II in service? Well, you know, um, I was born in 1935, which means that uh, I was only four when World War II started. Okay. Uh, and I was... I was ten. I was ten when it ended. So you know, when you when you're a youngster, when you're a kid, and you're running about, and okay, things like bombs are dropping on Manchester. But you know, in a way, this is your this is the time when you're learning everything. You're taking everything in, and to me, it was a, a time to sort of enjoy. It, rather oddly, you know, we we didn't uh, as children we didn't sort of exist. <clears throat> In fear, I'm I'm pretty sure that my my father and mother they were they were probably scared of what could happen, but being a youngster, you know you're not you're not brought into this world with the, all all the knowledge that this you're frightened of this you shouldn't like this. So as children, both Jeff and I we probably enjoyed the fact that there were no lights on. We could run around in the dark because. After the war, all the lights came on, and it was a totally different world. But uh, during that time, I, I guess we uh, we just grew up with, with uh, different, I, I suppose, different principles and different sort of way of looking at life because you couldn't do a lot of things. And uh, but we didn't know. We're young; you don't know these things. So we, in that sense, we were lucky. But once the uh, once the war was over. I was 10 years old. I'd obviously remembered quite a few things from the war. I remember watching the, uh, well, looking at Manchester because Bolton was slightly higher than Manchester and we could look at uh, 
the bright sky. I don't say we could say any fl flames from bomb dropping, but we could see the bright skies. And uh, it's something that I've never forgotten. I've also never forgotten the air raid war, the sirens going off. And the fact that when the sirens went up, you had to go back home and go into some sort of shelter. That happened for a few years, but you know, people just got used to it and didn't bother anymore. So it was just a funny sort of life. After the war, we started having education because during the war, the teachers, they were all away. They were all fighting. And so we had very few teachers. Whatever women teachers were around, we had one or two, but education started for me at 10 years old. And uh, I, I went to college. I uh, left college at 17, and I had one year working in the family business. And uh, I guess, really, we didn't know much different. You were still enjoying life at 17, you know, going out, doing the things playing soccer, whatever it is, you're still enjoying life. It was at 18 that uh, I had to go and my brother had to go to do national service. Now, that, that probably did change our lives because up until then, mother was making the bed, making your meals, doing the washing, doing everything that uh, sort of... what. <laughs> It's normal in life, <laughs> and yet when and then when we go away and we uh, we have to start looking after ourselves, you have to start thinking a little bit differently, and uh, that those two years I think made a difference to both Jeff and myself because when we came back, we came back to the uh, uh, to the parent company, and we came back to a failing company. When you when you say failing, because early on in the book. Um... Some very notable runners in um, in the UK were wearing uh, the trike spike, spike shoes uh, designed by the Foster Company. How can such a successful uh, invention fall on the words of a failing company? What happened? Well, I mean, okay, what happened is that um, when my grandfather died in 1933, that's 15 months before I was born. And as you said, I'm born on his birthday. So grandmother said, mm -hmm, okay, you brought your name with you. So that's me, Joseph. Um, and grandfather, he had had, even in 1904, he had world records in his spike shoes. In 1908, he had gold medals at the London Olympics. And during the 20s, he had lots of gold medals, three in particular. And if you, uh, Chariots of Fire, it's Harold Abrahams, Lord Burley, and Eric Little. They were three gold medal winners immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. So, yes, this was a famous uh, company. Plus, um, I don't know how much you know of the UK and football teams. Maybe you've heard of Manchester United. Uh, a little bit. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Grandfather actually made training shoes and boots for 96 football teams and rugby teams. And those football teams include all the leading football teams, Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal. Um, Liverpool. Yes, there's some Liverpool. Chelsea. There's Rangers, Celtic. All the football teams, even Bolton Wanderers, <laughs> which was our local team, of course. And uh, by the time Jeff and I came back from uh, doing national service, we didn't have a football business. That had been taken by Adidas. 
Adidas had come in to the UK and taken that business. So we didn't have, and uh, they didn't have sales reps. They didn't have a marketing uh, policy. They did some advertising in the uh, sports magazines. But apart from that, they were not building a company. And uh, the, how can I say, I, I think that the, the size of the company remained static, but the uh, the window in which they traded was going smaller and smaller uh, because other people were coming into the business. So uh, we tried, as you've said in the book, we tried to get my father to talk to my uncle, but he didn't. All they did was they, they feuded, just like Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they feuded. However, Rudy Dassler had the sense to leave the company and set up his own company, Puma. Whereas the Fosters, my father and my uncle, they just kept feuding. So it was that that, um, that really prompted us. As I say, when grandfather died, grandmother Salters was there to keep the peace. And she kept the peace between, uh, uh, between her sons. And I don't think Jeff and I realized that that's what was going on. She was keeping the peace. But she died... Um, whilst we were away doing national service and the company just didn't move on. And when Jeff and I came back, we did. We came back to the father and an uncle feuding, fighting on occasions. We had, we had to separate them on occasions. So if we, we couldn't do anything about it, we tried. But in the end, we just had, we decided we needed to leave that company and set up our own company. Well, the way that you you wrote the book, you convinced your brother to leave, and your father um, held a little ill will. He didn't he didn't transfer that over to um, your younger brother Jeff. Which Jeff, you you left the house and surrendered your brother to stay in the house with the person that was pissed off with both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah. my my actually my brother was older than me. He was two years older. Um, I got my facts all wrong. Please forgive me. <laughs> just slightly, but that, that doesn't matter. Uh, I, I guess that um, I was a little bit more forward, probably a little more cheeky, uh, not quite so uh, uh, peaceful as my uh, my older brother. And uh, to an extent, because I was that way inclined, I got blamed. I got blamed for... Uh, taking my brother away. I, he he was equally as anxious as me to uh, to set up a new company, but he didn't say too much. I, I did most of the talking, so I, I guess that's why my father blamed me. Yeah, you said in the book, um, and I, I'm, I'm saying your, your vision, you said that the running cycle shoe sales were steady and that uh, it would be easy for you just to settle for a stress-free life, maintain life, as it was for you and your brother, but it was tempting to stay in that lane. But you saw beyond just making a wage. If life was going to turn from a good life to a great life, your vision had to be challenged, um, not on a local company, but it had to become a global brand. In your words, you wanted to prove to yourself that you can win. Th that's a very strong attitude for a young, young man, that you wanted to prove on a global basis basis that you wanted to win i uh i i guess when you initially start 
necessity really drove us to leave the parent company. <clears throat> necessity was that uh, they were not trying to improve and grow the company. The company was dying, and uh, I told that to my father. And, and, and I think amongst that conversation is, look, we have, we have to progress. If we don't progress, if we don't grow, we will die. And so in, in leaving that uh, parent company, it was okay. It's no good saying this to your father unless you go ahead and do exactly what you said, that we, are, we have to progress. So the, you know, whatever compels or impels you to do these things, it was possibly, I've got to show them we can do it. You know, we, we can really make this into a good company, a big company. But first of all, you start with those first steps. So just starting the company was an achievement in its first place. And I agree with that. And that's the reason why I, I, I highlighted this point, because coming out of COVID, a lot of businesses that were successful before COVID start to fail. And they didn't realize where the value of their company was. We we constantly think the customer is always first. The product is the most important. But the most valuable product is Joe and Jeff. Is when you come to the head of the, the, the dragon and the, the tail says, we can make life better for you. And instead of acknowledging and being heard, most companies shut their employees down. And what happens is um, employees look for opportunities elsewhere where you and your brother started a business, started a business. I don't know how you started a, a business because we all think about profit and, and, and loss. Um, I didn't read that um, your parents gave you a golden purse to start your business. How did you and your brother start a business with just what little bit you had um, in your knickers? Well, I, I guess it's uh, when, when you're faced with making a choice of it's this or nothing, you go for this. <clears throat> and okay, um, Jeff had a little bit of money. Uh, I had uh, invested in a house and uh, selling the house made a little bit of money. So we didn't have much money at all. We, we didn't. And uh, in those days, the one good thing that we did, though, before we left the uh, foster company was to go to college at night, go to shoemaking college. And the, there was a college quite close by, probably 15 miles away from Bolton. And we went there. We, we went there really to learn more about shoemaking. But what we did find, we found a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of people who knew the business. And so when we were leaving uh, Foster's and we wanted machinery, we knew there were a lot of people there who helped. <clears throat> a lot of people, yeah, I know where you can get that machine. I know where you can get that machine. And you, you need, so whatever we needed that we didn't know, we could ask the people at the college. And they were more than, more than helpful. They, they would go out of the way to help so that that was that was incredible, and I, I think that was uh, probably one of the best things we did in those early days was to go to college and meet people, meet people who could help, and uh, they helped us buy our machinery. In fact, uh, we we managed to set up our factory for about two hundred and fifty pounds, which, uh, well, mind you, in those days that was probably like five hundred dollars, maybe maybe a little bit more in dollars. Right now. 
it's it's two hundred and fifty dollars almost. <laughs> the, right. the pound has dropped against it. But so we we started our factory, and and I, and I think that sort of helped. Those people, we we didn't feel feel alone. <clears throat> we felt we had help, and uh, and and I think that was good. And yeah, any, anybody starting out, as you said, you said you don't do this on your own. You need people, and you need people who are possibly family. And but you know. Family doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, your immediate family. Family can be other people. Family can be people that you really get on with and share uh, a feeling, share an idea. And throughout my my life with building the company, I met an awful lot of people who were willing to help. A lot who weren't, but a lot of people who were willing to help. And I think that that really started us on our way. Yeah, I, I was um, taught by um one of the co-founders um of netflix he says that um people when they invest they don't invest in the product they invest in the person behind the product and that's how it gets started and it's amazing for you and your brother to be so young and you be the younger brother now i understand your motivation for kicking and screaming and wanting something uh different but when you know when you look at it from an entrepreneur standpoint is that you know you had a a, a vision you had enough um, um, forewithal or, or strength to trust, to trust your gut. You connected with someone that was like-minded, being your brother. And then you understood where your, your shortcomings and your strengths were because, one, you realized that you needed to understand beyond the everyday labor work of how to run a uh, business, how to manufacture shoes and, and educate yourself. And then you surrounded yourself with like-minded people that shared your dream. I know with my company, I always say that every day I get up and I, I I do what I do in order to make the people that are with me successful. And I only surround myself with people that show up every single day that want to make the company I, I, I'm developing successful. And you seem to do that without saying so many words, exactly what I said. But right. also with your success, Success ha has a, a tendency to draw in magnets when you look for help otherwise. When I say the words or the names, Wilson, Gunn, and Ellis, um, and I say good times and bad times, um, please share with us um, the story of Wilson, Gunn, and Ellis and how that came to be because your company is starting to um, thrive and your vision starts to take on new, new legs and you realize that... Um, you needed to do more. And with every company, we start out as um, doing business as, and then before we have to go through the legalities of um, incorpororating and you started out, out at as LLC. So talk about William Gunn and Alice and your best friends there. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword, that one, Wilson Gunn and Alice. <laughs> That's why I said they, they, they need to read the, uh, the book um, this is a wonderful book, The Shoemaker by Joe Foster. It is the original story of the man that created and he founded Re Reebok. It is a much re um, a great read, especially for someone starting off in business. And in order to know the story of William Gunn and Alice, you have to read it in great detail. We're going to skim over it. But go ahead and tell us the good and the bad times with those people. The good and the bad times. Well, the, uh, the whole thing started off with my accountant. Um, we were only 18 months into our business, but my accountant said, Joe, you're doing pretty good. Uh, you better register that name, Mercury. And, uh, okay, 
we're green, we're a bit naive, why do we need to register that name Mercury? Well, if somebody else thinks that uh, the idea of a Mercury shoe is pretty good and they like to see the Mercury shoe, they start making it, you're going to be in trouble. So you better go and see Wilson Gunn and Ellis. <laughs> they're, they're patent agents. <clears throat> okay, so I I go along and uh, I think it was Mr. Ellis, actually, that I, that I saw. And uh, so he's going to check out Mercury. Mercury was our name. He checked it out and he found that it was already pre-registered by... Lotus and Delta, which are part of uh, British Shoe Corporation, they're big. They're very big. And he said, but they're not using the name. So uh, I asked them uh, if they would let you have it. And he said they would let you have it for £1,000. Well, as I just said earlier, we set a whole factory up for £250. £1,000 was way, way out of our budget. We, we couldn't do that. He did suggest that we could take them to court. And because they're not using it, you could take them to court and you could claim the name. But I asked again how much that would cost, and again, it was a £1,000. So we that wouldn't work. Okay, so uh, it was a nice day in May, and uh, Mr. Ellis pointed through the window to a sign, and that was Kodak. And I said, what's with Kodak? And he said, it's, it's a made-up name. They made the name up, so it's their name, no problem. Nobody's going to contest it. Okay. And he said, uh, be great if you can do that, but look, if you want to need a new name, bring me 10. And I'm saying, uh, 10? You know, we got to get, this is our, this is our company. we we got to love whatever name we choose. We've really got to get, get behind it. And uh, he said, well, we need 10 because... Uh, it's difficult these days, and that's going back to 1960. It's, it's difficult to find a name that, that is open and free for you to use. So, okay. So I go back, and we, we're sitting down around the table, and uh, <clears throat> we come up with the name Cougar. That's a good name, Cougar. Cougar Sports. Yeah, why not? Why not? Anymore, come out with E10. Falcon. Ah, oh, Falcon's a good name. Yeah. Okay, Falcon Sports. <clears throat> right. Let me take you back to 1943. I said during World War II, and I am eight years old. And like with COVID, people couldn't travel. It, you know, there was no traveling during World War II. And so nothing happened except for local events. And I am entered into a local 80-yard sprint race at the local athletics club. And I win the race. Great. I've got Foster's shoes on with spikes. That helped. Uh, I don't think anybody else had even heard of spikes, never mind running spikes. I won the race, and I got for my prize. And what do I get? I get a dictionary. And I'm saying, guys, where's the football? What, what do I want with a dictionary? Middle of, the, middle of the war. I've hardly any education going on. And on top of that, it was an American dictionary. It was a Webster's, a Webster's American Dictionary in 1943. I suppose I could have kicked the dictionary about, but I never did. And here we are now, fast forward, 1960, we're looking for names. And my American Dictionary sat by me. And I like the letter R. It's okay, I think. We'll start with R, all right? Turn up to R and start thumbing through the pages. It doesn't take long before you get to RE. So 
I get to R-W-B-O-K, Reebok, what's that? A South African gazelle. Gazelle, we're a running company. Gazelle, that was it. All of a sudden, we love that. Reebok, a gazelle. That was top of the list. And uh, with with the other nine names, I think I maybe you know more than nine names, I took these to Mr. Ellis, Wilson, Gunn and Ellis. I, I took the names. And I said, look, we want that one. We really want to be in love with this. And Reebok, Reebok, we really, we really feel that's the name. We want to be in love. Okay, but he's a lawyer. Okay. Two weeks later, he came back. Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. Okay, fantastic. Right. He said, but the registrar has got one caveat. And that is if somebody, wherever they are, start to make shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Well, I mean, Jeff and I, we looked at each other and said, that's never going to happen. No, that's impossible. We'll have Reebok. Well, because of that, though, the registrar and his wisdom said, we can only put you in part B of the register. Up until two months before, we didn't even know a register existed, so... Didn't matter to us. So we're in section B. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you now to the A section. And, uh, okay, why is that? Well, he said, now everybody knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal has to become has to come second. So that's Wilson, Gunn & Ennis. However, that was the good part of Wilson, Gunn & Ennis. We were a struggling company. And we were struggling. We were still struggling. And... To register your name, it costs a lot of money. And we, we registered, I think it was America, Japan, and Europe. We, we could manage that. But uh, we're a bit uh, slow in paying, so uh, we didn't know it. They, uh, they put the company, what did they do? A winding up petition. It was a winding up petition for yeah. the company. And we didn't know what that was. And I heard across to see my captain and say, what's all this? And he said, you're in trouble. <laughs> that's said, To our listeners, that's when the lawyers get together and figure out a way, if you can't pay, they're trying to take your business. Am I right, Joe? Well, they're trying to close down our business. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, they just close it down. Um, which is like, they never even sort of said, come on, can you, you, know, uh, can you pay us a bit? Can you do something? They didn't say anything. They just, because we didn't meet their terms, they just put us into a winding up petition. But fortunately, fortunately, I, I found a good lawyer. Yeah. And at that time, um, like most people, that business, um, you, you struggle. You don't share the contents of or, or the drama that's going on with your business with family and friends. And that time you had your daughter, Kate. Um, you did not share at that time your, your first wife, uh, Jean what was going on because you figured out you can carry uh, alone. Am I correct? I think I got the book right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you get to the point where what, unless you find an answer, don't give somebody else the problem. Yeah, right. don't, don't pass the problem into the family because they are not going to find the answer. You have to find the answer. And so it, it was, uh, okay, Jeff knew, you know, we, we shared that much. Um, but uh, no, we didn't, uh, we didn't, I didn't tell the family. It was, 
in fact, I didn't even tell the family what what the answer we hoped would be. Uh, but it was a, a good lawyer that got the answer, and um, and they had they had to accept some terms. So Wilson Good and Ellis had to accept terms because we had offered to pay it, but we couldn't pay it all at once. So we offered um, a plan, a payment plan, and providing we kept to that, uh, that was okay. So the winding up petition was thrown out, but that was our first scary moment, really scary moment. Well, um, there there is a happy in ending to this because you, you retained the Reebok name, you retained the, the business, you were in a uh, warehouse where um, I, I think you had moved uh, both you and your your brother and his family into the warehouse. You had floors that every single day were questionable if they were going to maintain the stability of the weight of the machinery and there there were needs. But you still looked across the pond uh, and your vision was to uh, break into the American market. Adidas, as we know it, um, I think Brooks and what was the other uh, shoe company? I don't know if Nike New was <clears throat> the New Balance, Atonic. Um, was oh, Nike no. thriving at that time? Well, who was Nike, Nike thriving at that time? Uh, no, no, Nike. I don't think Nike was even on the scene at that time, but if they were, they were just uh, doing uh, Phil Knight was just doing this out of his garage at that time, but no, no, Nike were not on the scene at that time. Now, your, your brother Jeff was pretty much content with doing business as um, you you were doing it. You had reps that were going to, to local um, sports stores. Many of the celebrities there, athletes, had their own um, stores. You had went to a uh, sporting goods store and you were making boots. But you still looked across the pond and you kept saying, how do I break into the U.S. market? Um, what was that red light moment? For you understanding how to advertise and market your way into the United States with the uh, uh, unknown product called Reebok. Yeah, well, the uh, the problem that I had was uh, growing the business or today scaling the business. So the problem I had was that we were in athletics. We we did a bit of rugby, but the, the big market uh, in sport was soccer football for us but soccer as uh, it's known in, in america um and okay that was a big market but we we could get a certain size with athletics but the, i knew that if we were going to expand in athletics or running the big market for that was america so many of the uh universities and colleges had teams and they had coach and coach was a god and you could go to university on a scholarship a sports scholarship so i knew that was a big market 350 million americans at that time with a good disposable income and a lot of people going to college um i knew a coach across there i knew um frank ryan he was uh, one of the head coaches at yale right and he had been uh he, he had been buying foster's shoes until Foster's closed down, because Foster's closed down about 18 months after uh, we left. It was dying, and it, it, it did die. Okay. So uh, so I, I knew the market across in, in America. Plus, you know, English is spoken in America. Right. People used to say, why, why not go to Europe? Because Europe is bigger. There's 400 million people in Europe. 
a smaller smaller country, but 400 million people, but they, they speak 30 different languages and there's 30 different countries and cultures, much more difficult. Plus the fact both Adidas and Puma were right in the center of Europe. Why go to the lion's den when the pastures were over there across the pond? Those were the nice pastures with some nice white space that we could uh, get into. So that was great. However, um, talking to the family, it was like, it's too expensive, Joe. We can't. How can you justify going across to America and taking part? That's an expensive trip. Luckily, luckily, I am reading a magazine called uh, Eurosport. And the British government had decided, and they were advertising this, they were advertising, they wanted um, British sports uh, manufacturers to export. And they would pay for a stand at the NSGA show. The NSGA show is the National Sporting Goods of America, and that was in Chicago in February, early February in Chicago. Cool. They would pay... Uh, yes, oh yes, <laughs> cold, cold, very cold. Oh, absolutely. Um, but they they would they would pay for the stand, they would also pay for the return airfare, and they would pay 50% of my expenses whilst I'm there in America. So uh, I didn't get any more arguments from the family. Joe, you can go. So off I went to America with a friend and um we, we actually went to New York, first of all. We actually stayed in a place in Times Square, and uh, I went to look at the sports stores. My friend was looking at the outdoor stores. Then we moved on to Chicago. Cold, yes, very cold. <laughs> and went to the show. <clears throat> um, that's, this is 1968. All right. <clears throat> in 1968, um, the guys love the shoes. That's great. Where do you get these shoes from? And I'm saying from England. They're saying, is that New England? No, I'm saying it's not New England, it's England across the water. Well, we'd established that. But what we also established was the fact that uh, in those days, as in the UK, uh, lots of sports stores were just small stores run by ex-sportsmen. And uh, to import the product, no. One or two did. I think Dick Sports, they, they, they imported a few. Um, but really, no, they didn't want to know. So 68, when do I get in? I get into America in 1979. 11 years. <clears throat> 11 years of continually going to America. Not all the time did we go to Chicago. It was uh, one in every four they, they had in Houston. Right. So one... Going down to Houston was fine. That was nice and warm. Great. Otherwise, the other three years out of four <clears throat> was in Chicago. But what uh, the big thing, I, I tried. I had six attempts to get in with different people, and uh, we failed. We failed miserably. On six occasions, we failed. But the, the change, the thing that happened for us was uh, running. Running became a big category in America very late in the 60s, and by 1975, it was really big. And with it, Runner's World. Runner's World was a magazine, started as an A4 in about 1968. By 1975, he was 50, 60 pages, 
full, glossy, great magazine telling everybody where the next uh, runs were, the 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons. And he would also give results, results of races. And in his wisdom, Bob Anderson decided he would tell everybody which was the number one shoe to buy. Nike. By that time, Nike had grown tremendously with the, with the boom in running. Nike. You can buy Nike. Phil Knight, unfortunately, he was <clears throat> he was importing his shoes from Japan and Asia. And uh, all of a sudden, 350 million Americans, maybe 10% are now running. That's 35 million runners. And maybe 10% of those wanted that number one shoe. Three and a half million. Could he get those shoes? No. Could they turn up that wick and get the production? No. And after 12 months, uh, Bob Anderson decided, now we have a new number one shoe. And I don't know which that was. It may have been New Balance. It may have been Brooks. Um, same thing happened. They were bringing the product in from uh, from Asia. Couldn't, couldn't match the numbers. So the year after, Bob Anderson either was persuaded or he hit on the idea of uh, introducing star ratings. So a five-star shoe would be at the top and you could put down. Right. That's when I knew. That's when I knew we could make a five-star shoe. Um, making a number one shoe, no, that was not on for us. That, that would never happen. We didn't advertise enough in the runner's world. We advertised, but we were not the biggest of advertisers. So we never got a number one. But five stars, I knew we could get a five star. And so uh, I am in uh, Chicago in 1979. We built our uh, five star in 19, uh, our Aztec, which was to become a five star. We built that in 1978 and with, uh, with other uh, shoes in our gold range. Inca was a spike, Midas was a track shoe. We got a lot of gold medals at Edmonton, which was the Commonwealth Games. So we, we had a good shoe. And uh, we're looking at February in 1979. The shoe edition would come out in August. And uh, by that time, running was a big thing. And we were known and Kmart. Kmart came up and... Uh, um, the sales rep or, or the per, the buyer there, he wanted 25,000 pairs. 25,000 pairs. Well, for our small factory back in England, that was about six months' work. However, I had friends, as we've mentioned earlier, and I had friends, and one of my friends, he was just setting up uh, the sports division for Barter. I don't know if you've heard of Barter. Mm -mm. No. Barter really, they're still the world's biggest shoemaker in volume. They're still. Speaking of shoemaker, I'm going to I'm gonna ask you to pause there for one second because I just want to let our listeners uh, know that if you just tuned in, we are talking to, with Mr. and Mrs. Joe and Julie Foster, the original shoemaker, and his new release book, uh, The Shoemaker. The untold story of the British family's firm that became the global brand known as Reebok. And when we come back, I want to talk about the Lawrence Sports Company. We're going to we're going to follow up with that relationship with um, Kmark and how that turned turned out, and understanding why 
Um, the answer was yes over no, or maybe it was no over yes. But I also want to find out about finding uh, firemen. Uh, we'll talk about that. So, Joe, Kmark, let's go back to Kmark and coming up, they had placed an, uh, an order. And most people don't know when you get into a big box store that um, it's not um, the safe haven. Most people uh, realize it realizes that you've got to uh, earn your 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 space on, on, on the shelf and you got to continue that. Otherwise, your product comes back to you in any condition they send it in. And so um, and for most people, that's a dream come true. And for some people, that is a nightmare. So Lawrence Sports. Um, was I think was part of that conversation before or after Kmart, and that's and you noted that in your book. Lawrence Sports were uh, before Kmart. Yeah, they they came before Kmart, but that was <clears throat> that was the progression of our business in the UK. The progression of our business in the UK and in athletics was really good. Lawrence Sports they made soccer boots, but they only made soccer boots, and uh, their distribution. They, they had representatives all over the country, and they sold a lot of soccer boots. But they didn't make the shoes that we were making. And we were making trainers, sneakers possibly, but there were, there were training shoes, <clears throat> as well as spike shoes and uh, different country shoes. So we made a different product, and uh, the, uh, the head of sales at Lawrence said, why don't you uh, come to us and we'll, we'll handle all your sales. <clears throat> For me, that was great. It didn't turn out great in the end, but but it was great that, that somebody else who covered the country would look after all the sales, <clears throat> and because we were we were sort of a different product to Lawrence, it fit in very nicely. Um, <clears throat> so that's where Lawrence came in, and Lawrence were looking after distribution in, in the United Kingdom, and uh, when it came to America. We, we moved on a bit because, unfortunately, Lawrence Sports, the man who was really running the company, he was getting on in his years and uh, decided to retire. Only something like 18 months after Lawrence had been doing our distribution, he decided to retire and his son-in-law took on the business. And keeping that story short, um, his son-in-law and the head of sales, who was a friend of mine, did not get on. Result was that the head of sales left and took all the salesmen with him to set up the Barter uh, Company, the Barter's uh, Sports Division. And uh, unfortunately, the son didn't have, uh, Mr. Lawrence's son did not have the same acumen as uh, he did. I mean, the first thing is he should never have fallen out with a salesman <laughs> because his sales suddenly, suddenly his sales went. And of course, <clears throat> this also affected our product. And to the point that uh, they made a number of mistakes and within a very short while, they were really going out of business. Almost cost you your business, didn't it? It almost cost our business, but uh, the only thing I could do was to go take a big van, go down and collect all the shoes they hadn't paid for. And we had to do that before they went out of business. <clears throat> That we did and uh, brought them back. But of course, I think if our bank manager had heard the fact that we were not going to get paid for all those invoices that we'd sent out, I think we would have been in serious trouble also. <laughs> uh, 
as it was, we put together a team and some ideas. We went back to our athletes who we'd been dealing with direct. We went to all the schools and we started to sell a, a highly discounted Reebok shoe. <laughs> and it was highly discounted. However, we were selling it for more money than Lawrence were paying us. So uh, in a way, we were still making more money. We managed to clear in about two I think maybe at the outside, three months, we managed to clear that stock. <clears throat> so we did really well on that. And during that period, um, another company who thought that our product was really good, they they came up, uh, Carter Pocock, and they said, can we be your distributor? So having had a, a bad lesson, I, I did sort of put some caveats into that as to what they they must do. But they, they took over that UK distribution. And... Uh, and all this happened before I uh, before I went. Well, <clears throat> I'd been going to America, but before the uh, nineteen seventy nine date that uh, Kmart were sort of stepping up and saying, "I want twenty five thousand pairs." So, uh, <clears throat> so the, what had happened in the UK again? We could have gone out of business with uh, Lawrence Sports failure, but we survived that. And we now have a new distributor in in the UK. So uh, I'm I'm now 1979. Kmart come to the stand, twenty five thousand pairs. And as I said, <clears throat> my friend who left Lawrence, he'd gone to Barter, and Barter, as I say, biggest company, still the biggest manufacturing company in the world. They're they're big in Latin America, big in India, but in Europe and America, they've just disappeared. Um, but, uh, so my friend said, look, if you, if you get a five star, we will help you at Barter and Barter are big companies have said they, they could do that. But then came out, uh, he said, well, we need a better price. Well, although Barter could do a better price than we could do with our small factory, uh, I knew that's not what he meant. He meant, we want you to get them from Asia. Right. So, uh, again, uh, we had sort of figured out that if we get a five star, we probably would need to get some Asia production. And mm-hmm. I had uh, <clears throat> I had met with uh, the agents for one of the biggest uh, Korean factories. I met with him in London, and we they were already looking for working on samples. So mm-hmm. I had that in place as well. Okay, so as you mentioned, the problem with a big box company like uh, Kmart. If you don't, uh, if you don't reach the financials that they're looking for on the square footage they've given you, that that that, that could be your first and your last order for twenty five thousand pounds. Yes. Towards the end of the nineteen seventy nine show, Paul Fireman came along, and Paul Fireman, he was running a company with his brother and his brother in law, that was Boston Camping. Boston Camping was selling tents, fishing rods. You name it, all the bits and pieces. And uh, we got on well. I I could talk to Paul. And he he was an owner, also struggling. He was doing what he'd been doing for the last 10 years and probably not moving anywhere. But just going around that same sort of uh, fishbowl, just doing, okay, we're, we're doing a nice business, but going nowhere. And Paul said, look, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe, I'll be your distributor. Okay, it's another one. But I could get on with Paul, and Paul had a business, and uh, he, he was doing 
reasonable. So at that point, we left the uh, we left the show. Um, we're, we're in February. The shoe edition is not going is not coming out until August. And whether we get a five star with our Aztec, we have to wait that time. So I go across to America and I go to see Kmart, and uh, I'm not impressed by the the buyer, one of a hundred buyers in a big room, and I'm thinking, no, doesn't really fit our culture. Um, so I go on to Boston and meet up with with Paul, meet his brother and his brother-in-law, see his nice business, great, that's okay. And later, Paul came across to the UK to see if really Reebok existed and uh, to what extent it existed. So we managed to take him to a few races, of course. We knew who would win the race because, you know, we, we'd supplied these athletes and we knew that at least 50% of the people running in those races would be running in Reebok. You're a smart so, man. <laughs> no, I think I think Paul Fireman knew exactly <laughs> what we were doing. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he was, uh, yeah, I think he was smart enough. But but I think as far as he was concerned, it did prove at least <clears throat> that we were on the ground and we were uh, we were quite significantly on the ground. So that's pretty good. Uh, okay, last week in July, now the Runners World edition will be out, and I phone Paul, and I say, Paul, please just go down to the local kiosk and see if the uh, Runners World magazine's there. Check us out. An hour later, he came back and said, Joe, Aztec, five stars. That was it. We had a five-star shoe. But he said, not only that, Inca, which was our spike, and Midas, which was our racing shoe, also they also got five stars. So we arrived on the American market with three five-star shoes. Up to you, Paul. Way to go. Way to go. Um you know, I, I I will tell you, I've worn your product. I've raced in um, probably high school and college in your in your spikes. Um, but um, I, I want everyone to know how do they get your book? How how can they reach you? How can they reach you? And how can they get their book? Where where's your book being sold right now? Well, in Amazon, and the other one, if you want to sign copy, jwfosterheritage.com. jwfosterheritage.com. That gets you a signed copy if you want that. But the easy way is Amazon. Get to Amazon and Shoemaker. And uh, yes, it's there. It's possible. You can get the uh, Kindle. The hard, the, well, there's a hard book. There's also the uh, paperback. You can get Kindle and you can get audio. Okay. I tried to get the audio and it only came up in a different different language. I have to look back and get that again. Yeah, you have to. I think you have to get the audio from Amazon.co.uk. Okay, I have to As get it. To Amazon.com. Now, you know, we, you know, everyone says, make a long story short. I purposely ran this interview longer because I needed people to hear the story. Your book is 350 something odd pages long. It is a great read. It gets better as it goes along. When you get to chapter 21, you know, with Finding Firemen, it gets better because you keep reading, go, okay, what's the success of uh, uh, Reebok? I know the story personally i don't know all the details and so we're going to get the details when did the corner uh when did you turn the corner of connecting um with the united states and how 
And I will tell you, I have a picture of me uh, teaching uh, uh, an aerobics class in your shoes. Um, I I don't want to make that public because Jane Fonda um, had an outfit and all the men wore the tights and the different colors and the shoes and the leggings, whatever. And I happen to be in one of those outfits. But go ahead and tell us about how uh, Reebok became Reebok, the brand we know. And it went from being unknown to being at the top tier in the must shoe that you had to have it during the time uh, in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s. Well, indeed, it was probably um, the 80s, I think 82, when we first sort of uh, came across aerobics. But uh, we were a running company, and we were doing nicely. But we had a we had a tech rep down in Los Angeles called Angel Martinez. And Angel, <clears throat> yeah, he's a good tech rep, no problems, that's it. But his wife, his wife, Frankie, is going to aerobic classes and coming back and just follow it, absolutely loving it. And I was saying, what are you doing? And she said, well, we're doing aerobics. And of course, in those days, I was saying, okay, what's aerobics? Well, she said, we're uh, actually exercising to music. Great. Can I come down to the next class? Yes. Arnold went to the next class. And what he saw was uh, an instructor wearing a pair of sneakers. And we think there were New Balance at the time. And the class, half the class are wearing the same shoe and the other half not wearing any footwear at all, but barefoot. <clears throat> Arnold had that. This was his light bulb moment. This was something that, uh, and he thought, why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics on a woman's last, woman's sizes, and make it of glove leather? Nice and cushioned. Brilliant. And they did. And I didn't know they were doing this. I had not a clue that they were making these shoes. And uh, he'd been up to see Paul Feynman uh, when, he, when he thought, oh, let's make a shoe. Went to see Paul Feynman and Paul Feynman, he, he's so excited. And he said to Paul, you know, we've got to make this shoe. We've got to make a shoe. <clears throat> and Paul saying, slow down, slow down, slow down, Arlo. We're a running company, you know, and we're doing nicely, thank you. And he, he sort of put Arnold off and sort of just, you know, watch it, see if it's, uh, see what it's like. <clears throat> and if it's really good, we can get into it. But Arnold went round to the back door and had a word with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our product man. Uh, he did a better job with Steve. He persuaded him to get 200 pairs of samples of the shoe we just described. Okay. He got his 200 pairs and he gave them to the uh, instructors and some of the leading girls. Fabulous. They loved them. They just didn't use them for the aerobics. They went to work in them. They loved them so much. They were walking about in these shoes. However, they were made out of glove leather. And glove leather is 0.7 of a millimeter thick. Mm -hmm. When you take the surface off, because you've got to put glue in there to stick the sole on, you're about half a millimeter, 0.5 of a millimeter. If you can imagine that, that's nothing. Yes, they're good for gloves, but for shoes, when the girls start jumping about and doing the things, after a month, they fell apart. Mm. But we're in Los Angeles, and the girls love the shoes so much, they just went out and bought another pair. They love them so much. Okay, anywhere else in the world, I think that would have been the end of Reebok. Right. (laughs) 
because <clears throat> if a shoe falls apart. But in America, and particularly in Los Angeles, they give you more than one chance. Yes, you know, oh, we love them so much. <clears throat> They're bound to get it right. Took us about a couple of months to really get it right, using a leather more like um, a garment leather, which mm -hmm. was still soft, but had more was had more substance. Right. We got that right. And then, as you alluded to, when Jane Fonda went out, bought a pair of Reebok shoes to wear in her exercise videos, that was it. We were a $9 million company at that time. The end of that year, we were a $30 million company, then a $90 million company, $300 million, then $900 million. In under five years, we'd gone from almost zero to a billion. And that's what, yeah, 3.5 the way everyone else writes it. <laughs> but yeah. the, the funny thing is, is that you gave shoes away for free. And uh, I think Reebok won. You had over, um, uh, I think I'm going to say you were probably one of the first influencers, social media influencers, 132,000 uh, people or fitness instructors. Uh, were, weren't being paid. There was going around promoting your product. Best marketing program, best advertising program, and did not cost you a dime. You're freaking brilliant. <laughs> you You're freaking brilliant. Well, you know, it takes more than me. There's a whole team there in America working hard. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they come up with some great ideas. And, of course, you know, when you when you when you look at the aerobic shoe, <clears throat> if I if somebody had told me before they actually made them we're going to make these out of uh, glove leather, I would have said no, you don't, because glove leather's for gloves. Yeah. So uh, you know the first way to the first time they tried to get around this was they started to line the uh, the glove leather with nylon. Right. At that point, I heard about it and I said no. If you align it with nylon, you're going to stop what leather is, is all about, and that it breathes, leather breathes. So what did they do? They punched holes in the front so that it would breathe. And right. this, is, this is a lesson for me that marketing, marketing is so much better than being a shoemaker. Yep. <laughs> marketing is so important. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> so I learned lessons. Yes, and uh, giving away shoes, it's a cheap way. Now... Oh, now it costs you money. <laughs> yes, yes. So for, for my listeners, I, I just want to tell you, I'm not going to go through the whole book, all right, because I want you to read it. Because as an author, the only way authors become successful if people know your story and they repeat and share your story. So I'm going to ask you to go to Amazon.com and pick up the book, The Shoemaker by Joe Foster, the original shoemaker. Um, buy the book, write a review. Um, if you want a signed autograph copy from Joe, how do you get that, Julie? From www.jwfosterheritage.com. All right. I, I, I've i grown to know and love both of these people um, very well. And um, I've said this a thousand times. I get calls from celebrities all the time wanting to be on my, on my podcast to promote their movies and whatever. And I always said, I'm never, ever going to have a guest on my my show that's not doing something for the community or to help someone else. And um, the, the one thing I want to share with you is another little bit. 
of Joe is such a kind uh, chap. He, but listening to his story the other evening in London was so inspiring, and uh, just people fell in love with him. He's uh, old school, very traditional, fabulous manners, great values, and it's lovely to hear how he did business and how he um, got into America. Um, and then got into the aerobics industry and how how humble um how humble he he is now and what a fascinating story um a lot of people i've been doing business with a, a cutthroat and um it's all about money and and uh manners and values don't seem to matter to them in fact a friend of mine said to me you know penny there's no place in business for manners and I've, I was just determined to uh, not do business like that. And that's why it's so always so lovely to hear Joe's story, because um, he's such an authentic, genuine guy. Um, and I'm very proud and honoured to to be friends with, with Joe and his wife, Julie. And, you know, with that said, um, part of my motivation for having you guys on here after meeting you during an icebreaker call is that it is literally almost impossible after you meet joe and julie i should i'm a southern boy should be julie and joe foster not to fall in love with the, these two um people um coming out of COVID, I, I said advertising going forward in the way we do business has to be personal if you're not giving back you're taking away joe and julie have um, create a, a a multiple foundations and one of the ones and I and I want you guys to talk in depth and I, I'm going to ask Julie to talk about the loving classroom and Joe you can kind of support her on, on that and Julie thank you for sitting and listening to uh, your husband's story I know you probably heard it um, a thousand and, and one times and um, I I know from reading the book um, sir I'm so proud of both of you guys and. Um, like I said, anything and everything that I can do with my platform, even Julie, if you don't want to carry his luggage at his his next trip, Joe, call me up. I, I'll go with you. Thank you, Kevin. So you tell us one. about the loving classroom, Julie. Well, we do. Um, there's two things that we're involved with. Um, one is Let's Localize, and the other one is Loving Classroom, which is very new to us. Loving Classroom. Um, let's, um, but they're both education focused. Um, to with which both with younger children not necessarily older children the um the let's localize build is um, a platform that brings local businesses and local schools together under one uh digital platform there's the saying it takes a, a village to raise a child well we have a digital village now so that the community can come together businesses schools and teachers can be all be and parents all on the same platform if schools need something, they can ask on the platform. If local businesses can help in whatever shape or form that is, they they will provide it. Um, and vice versa, businesses can say, we've got an excess of, say, laptops, or we're changing iPads, or I've got some men free a couple of days next week. Does anybody need any work doing? And then schools can say, oh, I need this. Businesses can say, I can give you this. So it's a it's a, a community helping to um, bring to schools the things that government, you know, just the government can't give 
absolutely everything. So let's localize, have a digital platform where we can all work together to, to make children's lives in school um, a lot nicer, a lot easier. And then the Living Classroom side is uh, a different group and they have got a syllabus that is a 38 week syllabus. There's a book um, set out for every lesson and it comes under the um, sort of the personal uh, and welfare classes that children do. And it teaches children to be grateful, teaches gratitude, kindness, respect for others, thoughtfulness, all around, all centered around talking about, um, you know, being kind to each other. Um, gratitude. It's fully up and running in Israel. It's fully up and running in South Africa. And it's now just on its pilot scheme um, with the in the UK. So we just just started to um, to learn more about this and be more. And we're supporting where we can with um, exposure into the UK. So that's the two things we're mainly involved with. And we hope to get both global. Yes, we hope to right. get the, the the challenge for Let's Localize is to actually help at some point one billion children. All right, Joe, Julie. When you come to the U.S., I know your your dealings with U.S. Uh, distribution and reps over here. Feel free to use me when you come over here. I can I can uh, guarantee you you won't have any of the issues you had with some of the ones you had in your books. I work my butt off. <laughs> and for those okay. of you that are just tuning in, if you want to reach Joe, you can reach reach him on uh, Twitter um, dot com backslash Reebok Founder, Instagram. Uh, Reebok, the founder, Facebook, JW Foster Heritage, and LinkedIn. There's so many letters, I, I don't know how, how to do that. But his book is available on Amazon.com. Um, um, it's on all the platforms, Kindle, um, the UK for um, the uh, audio ver version. Joe, Julie, I always ask this of every single guests well 99% of the guests um that come on our show and I want to thank you in, in advance um if you had one wish to come true I always see your ask ASK and it's hard to believe I would ask someone that pretty much has um one of the biggest hearts and um one of the greatest social circles on this planet what your ask would be but if you had one thing that can come true something that you can do or have done for you um, the people that listen to um, my podcast and subscribe, there are not the people that drive by uh, an accident. They stop and help. So I'm going to sit back and ask you what your ask ASK would be. You want to go first to me? <laughs> Mine's the same as yours. <laughs> well, my, yes, we, we, we would love you to buy the book and then we can do more with our charity work. Uh, we think that... Uh, um, there isn't no, there's really no point in writing a book unless people read it. And I think you alluded to that earlier. Right. So it's lovely to read out, buy the book and uh, get to know us and get to know more about uh, Let's Localize, get to know more about the, the loving classroom because it's this giving back. And, and I think if we can give that back and if we can get people, we can make these global. People really become more involved in in life, in, in living it. And, you know, the future is the children. And that's why we are involved in both of those charities. So please buy the book. Please read it. Please get to know us. <clears throat> and 
then we can all get together and help children. All right, Julie, you want to add anything to that? Nope. It's a team. It's a team. <laughs> and, <what> do. <laughs> and just remember to my listeners, no one can do this one thing alone. Without um, people like Joe and Julie, um, Reebok and these charities and these foundations uh, would not exist. Um, without people like yourself, my listeners, um, the conversations that we have would not be conversations worth listening to, and these stories will never get told. We appreciate all of our loyal fans and listeners, and we do hope this episode brings you a little closer to the person you're sitting to next to. It gives you a little bit more insight and in understanding how um, businesses start, grow, and they fail, how they overcome, um, how they get into from go from the darkness into the light, and how they wind up being stories like uh, Joe Foster, the original shoemaker. Um, I can't begin to tell you uh, how much I appreciate this time. And I know you guys are, are busy with your tour and everything else. I appreciate Penelope for making the introduction. Um, when you get to the States, uh, my home is your home. You're more than welcome. You don't have to stay in a hotel. I'm just out, outside of Philadelphia. Um you're, this is an open invitation. Um, my circle of friends are, are small, and you are now in that inner circle. My, my my listeners, please reach out and help. My grandfather says, whenever you get to a point that you can help someone, it is your duty to do so. Reach one, teach one. And with that said, we'll fade to black. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>